0: A few words tonight about the refinement of attention. How do we add a bit of refinement to whatever level of attention we have at this moment? When we started out Friday evening, especially for some of you who are rather new to this, it was suggested Uh, to follow the breath. And at times, it might have been even questionable whether you could find the nostrils or even find that you have a nose when (laughs) the mind is all over the place, let alone track the breath. And so, I would say steadily and persistently in talks and in interviews, we've all been encouraging each other to place our attention with Breathing is to land on that object and to be with it and if taken away, to be where we're taken away too. So it's been encouragement to be with particular objects, to get to them, to remember to turn to them, to get to them, experience them. And now I think we're at a point in the retreat where a little gentle but firm encouragement could be helpful. To begin to discern some of the more subtle aspects of that which we're landing on. That's to bring into focus, if we use that image, it's a pretty good one for what I'm trying to convey, to bring into focus whatever it is that we have placed mindfulness on. Let me, uh, present a, a basic scheme that comes from the Noble Eightfold Path of the Buddha that might be helpful. Take a simple object like the breath. Step number one, there has to be something in the mind, a thought, a remembrance, which says in effect, go to the breath look at the breath, land on the breath, become aware of the breath, so that the thinking is directed in a way that is consistent with what the practice is. Then a certain amount of effort is needed to actually do that. The thought is, or the intention, or the stirring in the mind, is like a blueprint. But then the next step is we have to actually use effort and energy to turn to the breath or to the present moment, to whatever it is that we're observing. So we've taken the effort and energy to do that. And now we've landed on the object. There's a close placement of attention on, let's say for the moment, the breathing. The next aspect has to do with sticking to the object, the concentration. Granted that we're on the breath, now the question comes up, can we stay with it? Does attention stay with the object that we've uh, elected to be with or does it slip off? Does it slide off, roll off and find itself elsewhere? And I think it's this process that we've been talking about in one way or another for a number of days now. And what I'd like to add tonight, it's already been present, but um, to give it a a bit more special treatment, is granted that we land on the object after having come to it, having remembered to do that. See, perhaps we take all this for granted, but it's part of the learning process. We're with the breath. And now the question becomes the degree to which the subtlety with which we can actually discern the characteristics of the breath or anything else. But for the moment, it's the breath. It would be as if you were walking down the street and you see another human being, uh, say, 40 or 50 yards away. And as they become get closer, you get a general sense and kind of an outline, a gestalt an overall sense of the person and various social characteristics, types. You know, we, oh, yeah, that's a student. Whatever. That's a, you know, we, we do that a lot. And uh, we recognize the, what's coming into view. And then as we get closer and closer, we see that's true. They were a certain kind of person. But you can see all kinds of subtleties in complexion and posture and color of eyes and Uh, Should you get to know the person, then that, of course, becomes refined much, much more. Say, over a period of time, the original somewhat stereotyped image that we have of this person being a kind of type, an example of a general type, that's what a lot of what social sciences do. As we get to know the person more carefully, the type kind of recedes into the background and the particular idiosyncratic individual characteristics of the person loom, jump out more and no longer can we ever really feel confident and say this person is a whatever student. It's, a, it's true, it may be true, but it becomes not as helpful, relatively superficial, as we begin to know in greater complexity what we're looking at when we look at something or what we're listening to. It could be a piece of music. It could be a new town, a new country, anything. As we become more and more familiarized, we tend to see more and more subtlety. Then, of course, that can get hardened. We get so confident, it becomes so routinely and obstinately familiar that we no longer see the person. Perhaps we do that with old friends. So, in a way, we're back where we started. We started with a big social stereotype, and then we wind up with, oh, yeah, I know. Him, we've known Him for 10 years. So there's sort of not an inch for any kind of divergence. Okay, it's that This is what I'm getting at. And so the mindfulness has to do with, granted that we're with the breath and we're able to stay with the breath, are we able to begin to see the characteristics that make up the breath, the nature of the breath? Or anything else? And so at this point in the retreat, I think uh, periodic reminders and it's for some of you, it's already come up in interviews and no doubt will come up again in interviews. Uh, I wanted to say a few things about this bringing into focus, bringing the breath into focus. Now, we'll do a bit of a guided meditation in a few minutes, minutes which I hope will help you refine your ability to experience breathing. But please remember that the point is, what we're attempting to do is to, is to bring life into focus, is to bring our own life into focus. Now what is being, I think assumed, as for you to agree or not, by all of the Dharma teachings, is that for a normal person walking this planet, without very little, without any or much training, mind training, consciousness training, our life is not in focus. That what we're seeing, the reality that we're seeing is actually distorted, blurred, and not exactly the way it is. And so you could say that the training in Vipassana is largely learning how to see. The seeing here not being limited to the visual, to visual capacity, but to know. So it would include, of course, all of the senses, refining that, sharpening that, so that we become more intimate with ourselves as this capacity to really see gets developed. We become more intimate with ourselves, meaning the particular mind states, feelings, bodily conditions that come and go from moment to moment. Moreover, as we do that, perhaps it's possible to become more intimate with every other aspect of life as well. Nature, other people. So that we are literally more alive. Because we're more conscious. So that the world, perhaps, is the same world before we started to practice. But we begin to see with greater and greater clarity. And that makes all the difference. The seeing is not trivial. The degree to which we can add that refinement. Uh, The best example I can think of comes to me often because I have these things, these spectacles, these glasses. If I didn't know about the existence of these glasses, if I had never known that there is such a thing and this is what I think is normal, then at this moment I would use and I'll use the words I'm being mindful, I'm being aware, I'm paying attention. I am. Anyone doubt it? I'm really doing my best. Okay. Now, and what I see are is oh, a lot of blur, patches of color, and I can make out some uh, faces as being familiar in the front row, and it gets more and more difficult. But if I didn't know anything else, this is what I think the room would, this is it. This is my world. It's fine with me, I'm, you know as I go bumping into people and <laughs> tripping over things. But if I don't know there's any other option, and perhaps as it starts getting darker and darker, in the room, uh, I become even more dangerous. (laughs) And then somebody hands me one of these. Oh, and I put them on. It's the same thing. I'm still being mindful, aware, attentive, same language. And I'm aiming this camera, you know, in the same places. And now it's only a totally different room. That is, I can make out the differences between people—it's not just blotches of color, or shapes, or forms. There's a lot of recognition, and uh, hopefully, I would be less dangerous, <laughs> not tripping over this or tripping over that, and mistaking one person for another person. And so, it's something like that. And we work a lot on the breath, especially at the beginning, and in refining the breath, in bringing the breath into focus, and we'll do a little work on it in a few moments, gradually, perhaps what can happen is that our entire life more and more comes into focus. Even if we limit it to to the sitting practice. Refinement in the breath can lead to refinement in all the other objects that visit us. For example, If you watch the breath with any continuity, it becomes more and more fine. Whatever level it may have started out with, it starts to become much more subtle. And because it becomes more subtle, it's much easier at first to lose it. We space out and find ourselves elsewhere because it's become too subtle for the level of attention that we have. And so it becomes a learning challenge. When the breath becomes more refined, the quality of our attention has to drop down to that level. It has to become itself more subtle. Otherwise it will lose the breath. And so and of course this happens to us, but we keep coming back. And in the process of going to that more subtle breath, the mind itself is transformed. That's one of so as the breath changes and as we attempt to keep up with the breath, the mind benefits from that. The mind is brought in on it. And as the mind becomes more subtle, this is only with the breath, more and more is it able to exercise this refinement in knowing with thoughts, with bodily sensations, feelings, and so forth. Now, probably if we went around the room, all of us are have refinement in seeing and in experiencing in a way that differs each one from the other. That is, if you've done a lot of work with your body, there may be a tremendous amount of sensitivity and refinement to the experience of sensations in the body. And some people have been mind watchers. They've been watching their mind a lot and they're much better at that. Some people have had a lot of practice uh, being familiar with their feelings, their emotions. But what we're attempting to do is to even that out so that whatever object comes in front of attention, that we can more and more really begin to see it with refinement and to see its true nature. And now we're starting to move into the wisdom aspect of the practice. So the refinement of seeing or bringing the world into focus has very practical consequences in a very ordinary sense. Just not being Mr. or Miss Magoo anymore and that is useful. Just in a very ordinary sense. And as it gets deeper, there's the seeing really has to do with uh, the ultimate reason that Vipassana practice exists. The seeing has to do with not me recognizing one of you as who you are, but more and more, or me recognizing a certain state in the mind. Oh, this is fear but more and more starting to be able to see certain characteristics of, let's say, fear that are universal and that are highly significant. For those of you who have been coming to retreats, you've heard it, no doubt, many times. Impermanence, if there's unsatisfactoriness, knowing that, and the lack of selfhood, of a core, of a solid self in anything. And what is suggested is that the essence of Vipassana is more and more as we see this, as we begin to see the nature of life, our living can be more appropriate because we're living in accordance with the way things are. Very simply, if we can see, really see, with increasing depth and intimacy, that everything is impermanent, we already understand it now, probably everyone in this room agrees, but that doesn't have much transformative power. What's needed is an increasingly refined, intimate absorption of the fact of impermanence. Not just in the head, but our whole being gets it so that we are it. So that we are we are living the lawfulness and as a result, our life is more harmonious. Because if the world is truly as impermanent as the Buddha and others keep saying over and over again, and if we're not living as if that's so, then we're going to have a lot of problems because the law is not changing. The law just keeps being impermanent over and over again. So it's in this way that more and more this kind of detailed examination, investigation, shedding more light, on whatever it is we're attending to, is liberating. So that seeing is not a small matter, this kind of seeing. And from a spiritual point of view, this is by no means limited to Buddhism. All the great spiritual teachers put in this language, what they have been saying is that most of us, unless we do something about it, unless we take take on some spiritual training, walk a particular path, we are internally blind, we have inner blindness. You may have 20-20 vision and be a sharpshooter and all kinds of other things. But the vision that we're talking about now has to do with inner vision. And I think it's not an exaggeration to say that much of the human race is a bit blind there. We don't, we're not developed. Even people who have quite astute in their perceptions in regard to nature or sports or whatever the realm is that they've become an expert in. But when we turn it on ourselves, somehow the camera becomes blurred and we don't have focus. And as a result, we don't really learn about what's what, the way things are. Okay, what I'd like to do for the, for the remainder of uh, this period Is for us to move through a, a guided meditation. It won't be overly long. I know you've been sitting a lot. If you feel like taking a quick, you know, standing up and stretching a bit, please feel free to do do so. I'm going to keep talking though, because I uh, we're going to need we're going to need the time. Sometimes in interviews. What we've been doing is, um, I personally have found this very helpful in, in, uh, in interviews. Sitting with the person who's come in for an interview and both of us meditating together. We haven't done uh, much of this on this retreat. Some of it may start uh, the second time around in interviews. First time around often is just getting introduced. Just imagine this. Two people in an interview room or an interview situation, both meditating. And what I found helpful is while meditating with another person is to draw them out about how the breath is behaving as we both meditate together. Asking particular leading questions uh, which sometimes can help the person develop more precision, more refinement in their ability to see what's happening. Now, it's not that many of the particular questions and the answers that you may or may not be able to provide, you may not be able to answer some of what will be asked of you. It's all right, just let it go. It's not that any of those specific answers are all that important. But in your attempt to see as hinted at by myself in this guided meditation, uh, perhaps what will happen is your capacity to, the subtlety of your looking will become more developed. And that's that's why we do this in interviews sometimes. Um, What we'll be doing in regard to the breath, because I'll be just singling out the breath, because of time and just to get the point across, has to be understood as just one expression of a general kind of operation, which is everything we're doing on the breath can be done on anything else. So that if you can begin to see how, how detailed and how subtle you can begin to look at, the way you can begin to look at breathing, you perhaps can more and more transfer that ability fear, boredom, loneliness, anger. And the capacity to, to look at those states very, very clearly. To begin to be able to discern real detail in them and to see their basic characteristics with more depth and subtlety is tremendously helpful and very liberating. See if it's so. Test it. I know some of you already know that it's so. But if you're rather new to the sea of itself, so. so that the, the, the awareness is what liberates us, it's very simple. The awareness becomes like a flame. The awareness can become stronger than anything that comes in front of it. The ultimate challenge, in a way, being death. Can mindfulness be so unwavering that it can even look death in the eye? We're all training for that one, whether you know it or not. Okay, get into what's reasonable meditative posture for you. Now, normally, this is an interview between two people and so the other person can answer, but you won't be able to answer me. I'm going to make a few suggestions and what you'll do is be answering to yourself. The other thing I'd um, like to suggest just for convenience so that we can all work together in a sensible way is let's all follow the breath at the nose. And I know that some of you are working at the abdomen. uh, But since because of all the different ways in which people are working, it would be very difficult for me to talk us through this. So even if you're a firm belly person, come up to the nose. You'll live, it's okay. And understand that the principle is what's important so that you'll be able to transfer it, not literally, but you'll be able to transfer the sense of it to the abdominal breathing when you return to it or if you're working with the whole breath or whatever. So let's come to the, to the breathing at the nose, experiencing each in-breath and each out-breath. exactly as it is at this moment. begin with, let's look at the length of the breath. The in-breath has a beginning and an end. The out-breath has a beginning and an end. You get a feeling for how long it is. already an issue has come up? When is an end an end? Does the breath just drop drop off abruptly? Or does it fade out by degrees? Without making it into a problem, just a rough sense of the length of the in-breath and the length of the out-breath. comparing the in-breath with the out-breath? Which one is longer? You've been a breath watcher for a number of years, by now you may have a sense of certain norms as to how your breath is. And so you could even know in terms of length, whether the in-breath or the out-breath is relatively long or short compared to what you generally experience. But just knowing that one simple quality of the breathing, if we examine the breath from the point of view of texture, the fineness or the coarseness of the breath, looking at both the in-breath and the out-breath, find this Here means subtlety, smoothness. Is it like a piece of silk? Or more like canvas or burlap? When it's very fine, when the breath is very fine, sometimes as it touches the nostrils, that touch itself is quite a delight, very soft, and the nose likes it. Sometimes the breath is rather different, having almost a cutting edge to it, even irritating as it touches the nostrils. How is it for you right now we continue to examine the breath from the point of view of texture. Is there any difference between the in-breath and the out-breath? Any qualitative difference? through the breath now from still a different angle. Temperature. As the air goes in the nostrils and the air goes out of the nostrils, can you feel any temperature difference On a warm day like this, there may not be any, or it may be difficult to discern. We've examined the breath in terms of its length, in terms of its fineness or coarseness, its temperature. now a very important one in the teachings of the Buddha. Feeling. As your attention is with an in-breath, just simply feeling the in-breath. And without spending a lot of time figuring things out, would you say it's pleasant? Would you say it's unpleasant? Perhaps it's neither. Just experiencing the in-breath for a few moments and seeing what it feels like. moving to the out-breath. Once again, what is your immediate response in feeling the touch of the breath? Does that feeling, those sensations, do they feel pleasant or unpleasant? Or is it more a neutral kind of feeling? Is there any difference in the quality of the feelings between the in-breath and the out-breath? If the breath that's coming in or the breath that's going out is pleasant or unpleasant, what's its intensity? Is it very, very pleasant or just mildly so? Is there a slight discomfort at the nostrils or is it even painful? So we're further adding a further dimension to this quality of feeling on just a simple in-breath and a simple out-breath. if there's any degree of intensity to a pleasant feeling, if any of you are having that with the breath. Can you see now or can you remember did anything come up in the mind? Wanting it to stay around a little longer? Feeling good about yourself that perhaps you're doing this practice right after all? Mm -hmm. Or if it is unpleasantness that you are feeling, does the mind move in the opposite direction, wanting to get away from the breath, wishing I would talk about something else? Let's view the nostrils as a kind of tunnel, a passageway that has a ceiling and a floor and walls and some depth to it. As the in-breath enters the nasal passages, Where do you feel a touch? This is a, sometimes a very subtle piece of information that's being asked for. When it goes in and when it goes out, where is it touching the nasal passage? Is the flow of the breath more open in one nostril than the other? Are they both about the same? To answer, you really have to pay attention. And it's also a delicate operation, a delicate endeavor. If you're straining, you'll soon be tired. So it's a sustained but very delicate kind of attention. Of course, that's always true. Let's examine the breath from still another angle. This becomes very important in our attempt to see impermanence, change, firsthand, seeing change in our own breathing. Each in-breath begins and operates and then ends. And perhaps there's a pause. And then the outbreath has a distinct beginning. It operates and then it ends. How much of that process is vivid for each one of us? Some people report that at one time or another they see the beginnings of the breath. It's quite vivid and accessible, but oh, I lose the end of it a lot or the middle drops out and we're not just fully tracing, fully tracking each in-breath and each out-breath, but rather there are gaps. Sometimes a split second. We're attentive, and then we're not, and then we are again. We slip off the object that easily, and in that subtle way sometimes. It can be helpful if we begin to see that there's a pattern, for example, if we see there's a tendency to not be able to see the out-breaths end, the ending so much, then we can give it just a little bit more care and attention because we know that that's a point where perhaps we tend to space out. A Little by little, evening out, smoothing out the quality of attention so that an entire in-breath is experienced as it is. And an entire out-breath, the full life cycle of that out-breath is experienced as it is. Again, being careful not to force a strain. In the commentaries, one of the meanings of mindfulness, one of the qualities of it is its quality of thoroughness, non-superficiality. Part of mindfulness's job is to be really thorough. About 15 or 20 minutes ago, we began looking at the breath And if you can remember some of the ways in which your breath was behaving, come back to it again in terms of length, feeling, etc., whatever, and see if it's changed at all. you've already seen that you don't have to wait 10 or 15 minutes to see change but each breath seems slightly different when you're inside the nasal passage one breath may touch one part of the passage a certain way and then the very next breath it's slightly different So we're seeing, again, impermanence at work. The breath keeps changing. It keeps arising and passing away time and time again. If you have a sense of your breath right now, sometimes you can very directly experience the interrelationship between the body and the breathing. Another central teaching of the Buddha is that everything is interdependent. Nothing stands alone. Everything is affecting everything else. And sometimes you can really see that with the breath. You can see that the breath is tight or heavy, and so is the body. Or so is the mind. And then as the breath loosens up, you can feel some changes in the mind or the body. The in-breath is based on the out-breath. The out-breath is based on the in-breath. Sometimes that intimate relationship becomes very clear. So none of these breaths are self. They don't have a solid core. some of what we've looked at, just in various aspects of breathing, not particularly valuable in terms of Dharma practice, but just suggested to, in a way, make you work, get you to look more carefully. And some of it is right at the core of what we're doing here, really seeing impermanence in the breath. If there's any suffering, fully experiencing it and seeing that the breath is not something we own, but is rather a a natural phenomenon operating according to its own laws. I and mine don't apply except in a rather superficial way. Not superficial, but conventional in, in the sense of using language. In developing the ability to see and experience the breath with increasing subtlety. We're developing an ability that can be, and is intended to be, transferred to everything else that makes up a person, all the remaining aspects of mind and body. See if it makes a difference, if you're in a moment of loneliness or fear. If instead of getting caught in the word, a kind of gloss, instead of that, really going to the particular sensations, movements in the mind, shifts in pressure and weight, temperature, hardness, softness. Experience these very direct, primitive qualities that make up a mind and a body. See if that is helpful in working with any of these states. See if it yields insight. what we just did. The intention is not to get you to now drive yourself crazy by trying to have like a checklist of all those different things about the breath and seeing if you really know the temperature and whether it's touching the roof of the nostril and the in-breath or it's touching it. It's not that at all. It's mainly you can even forget it, what we just mm-hmm. did. It's mainly to look with greater care. And if it's helped in that sense a little bit, then it's been worth doing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.